RPG lessons learned. When the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. Hey, Brian. Hey, Dusty. How's it going? Man, I can't complain. Mike, how are you? Doing good. How are you? I'm good. So today, we're recording another RPG Lessons Learned. Uh, for those of you at home, this is the podcast where we recap our own sessions so that you can learn from our experience. But on today's episode, for the first time ever, we are breaking format. So we thought it would be fun. So we're here we are. This is episode 23. So we're almost six months into this podcast. We've learned a lot along the way. And we thought it'd be fun to kind of sum up a lot of what we've learned. So what we're going to do today, as you've already seen in the title of the podcast, is a job interview. It's a job interview for a DM. So I've talked to Mike and Brian ahead of time, and they have agreed to interview me as sort of a job interview for a DM. And just like our actual jobs, a lot of interviews today are driven off some behavioral questions, some style questions, some general questions. So Mike and Brian have prepared some questions, and I am going to do my best to answer them. So who's taking lead in the interview? I'll, I'll let you I'll start. Do it. I'll do it. Okay. Hey, Dusty. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thank you for having me. We really appreciate it. So we have uh, some questions that we want to uh, ask you, uh, basically, a, a, you know, a handful in respect to situation, a handful in respect to style. Mike and I will be alternating questions today. I will be taking notes as we go through, so don't think anything of that. It's just normal part of the interview process. Mm-hmm. So, any questions for us before we start? No, no. Thank you for this opportunity. Well, good luck. Thank you. So, first question in respect to uh, situational. Tell me about the harshest feedback you ever received as a GM that you agreed with and how you responded to it. Let's see. Harsh feedback that I agreed with. So, I'm going to go back to... And for those of you listening at home, I am going to use some some episode context here. So if you want to go back and listen for full context, you can. I'm going to go back to the Reavers of Harkenwold. So the the harshest feedback I ever received that I agreed with came from our good friend Mark. So when Mark played in our sort of city-spanning, valley-spanning adventure, the Reavers of Harkenwold, where we were meant to motivate an entire army, to defeat an entire invading army. And it was this adventure with this huge scope, uh, this epic sort of journey. And Mark came back and said, you know, this is what I hate. These people already have these armies, but somehow the five of us are going to make a difference in in motivating these armies to act to defend their own valley. And I've talked before about what a whoa moment that was for me. To say, yeah, that really, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Historically, you know, when you read history books of, of actual crazy things that small groups of people did, it's usually a smaller scale, individual missions, you know, sabotage missions, things like that. And that's what we've done ever since are things that are that are smaller scale. So the harshest piece of feedback I ever received that I agreed with was Mark questioning the, the, the very grand scope of our adventure and our five character place in it. And then how I dealt with it was to fundamentally change the nature of how I ran, you know, much smaller scope adventures. So follow up question real quick. If you had it to do over again, how would you have approached things differently? Uh, what do you mean? So how would, how would I approach that game differently? Yes. So in, in running the Reavers of Harkenwold, how would I run that differently? 
Um, I would have had you guys, instead of being introduced as kind of this neutral third party that can go to all the different factions and request their help, I would have had you introduced as a highly competent um, band of mercenaries that Captain Faringray very much trusted. And I would have had Faringray basically tell you guys, hey, there's a lot of money to be made in Harkenwold Valley. So if you head there and take orders from my friend, the guy who runs this, you know, city, Albridge, then, or I think it was Aldridge, then you, you can make a lot of money and he could really use your very specialized skill set. And then I would have used you guys, um, I would have given you missions as the mayor of Aldridge, like special forces almost. I would have given you individual sabotage missions, this mission, that mission. And when you come back and report success or failure, almost like in a video game, where you have these small-scale sorties or, or skirmishes, and then the cutscenes in between tie it back to the whole context of what's going on in the valley. As you win or lose these individual missions, I would have that impact how the game, how the overall invasion of Harkenwald was going for for the baddies and for your allies. Interesting. So from that, it sounds to me, if there was a movie made of the two campaigns, the way that you would have done it, the team would have been led by like Sylvester Stallone, but the way that we played it out, they were more led by like Adam Sandler. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just interjecting some humor. It's what I do during the no, interview. No, just make sure that you're That's comfortable good. and calm. Sure, yeah. What I would say is the way we ran it was more like Lord of the Rings. This epic high fantasy getting people together thing. And that's the way we originally try, tried to run it. And I would run it much more like Conan the Barbarian. Where, yes, your actions have consequences for these broader entities, for these broader armies. But your interests are really on a personal scale. Good answer. Good answer. I'm just taking notes. Go ahead, Mike. So can you tell me about the time? Uh, I'm sorry. Tell me about the harshest feedback you ever received as a GM that you disagreed with and how you responded to it. Sorry, I'm taking this one through. No problem. Take your time. And if we need to come back to it, we can. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just playing up this interview thing so much. <laughs> we do enough of these interviews in real life that it's it's hard to take it seriously on the podcast. I mean, <laughs> I even started out with the default, tell me about a time. Yeah, yeah like, it's oh, tell me about a time when yeah. they're very situational interview <laughs> questions. Um, the harshest feedback that I disagreed with was, all right, so number one, this is a game that I don't think went well. Um, but it, it's a, I'll, I'll again cite Mark. Mark is also the source of the harshest feedback that I disagreed with. So the zombie game. Oh, I love the zombie game. The Halloween game. So you loved it. I didn't like it. So I'm not trying to defend the overall game. Overall, I think the game did go poorly. Um, and our surprise twist ending with Mike's cleric turning bad went poorly. So wasn't a fan of that, but the game itself. Yeah, so those of you listening at home, you, you've heard this before. But the harsh feedback that I received at the end, so we never really touched on this in the show, but Mark's character didn't really engage with the zombies. Like, he had this, he had this attitude about the zombie game where he was like, you know, I'm sitting back and I'm letting you guys have the adventure. And he basically used his character turn after turn to, to hold the chairs and tables against the door. And he was like, I, you know, Mark, it's your turn. What do you do? I hold the door closed. Mark, it's your turn. What do you do? I hold the door closed. And, that really got on my nerves, and the harsh feedback he gave at the end was that, quote, we really weren't good enough at D&D yet for him to really engage with us. Yeah. And wow. I, 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 dis- I remember that. Any feedback that I get on the rules and how should I, – I'm very open to specific feedback on rules. Hey, Dusty, during this ruling, you forgot this rule, and, and that would have clarified the situation. Oh, wow. You know, hey, I don't read books cover to cover. 
I do run games as I can. This is a hobby for me and not a job. So I, I take it seriously, but not overly seriously. So I appreciate you bringing that up. I'll check into that. But just telling me, yeah, you're not good at the, you're not good enough at this for me to engage. That really turned me off. So I, I disagreed that I wasn't good enough for him to engage. And I wondered at the time if he was masking some, some lack of system knowledge or some lack of 4A knowledge that he was concerned about. So I guess what I'm saying is as a GM, as a DM, it is okay to disregard some feedback. Be thoughtful about it. Don't disregard all the feedback. But by the same token, don't take everything to heart. You know, j- just as a side to that, I had uh, I had completely forgotten until just now that you mentioned it that that Mark was at that game, like that whole episode we did talking about that game. I had forgot that that Mark was at oh, the I, table. I, I I knew he was there because of that specific piece of feedback. I remember him. That's all he did was he just stood at the door and held the door barred. Yep. You guys aren't good enough for me to engage yet. Oh, oh okay. All right. We saw it is. Interesting. Good good answer. Yeah, and uh, your response about uh, it's okay not to take feedback, that applies to anybody and everything, but don't let that be a crutch and just say, well, I don't have to accept that feedback. Yeah. Absolutely. You've got to be thoughtful. It's it's got to it's got to be thoughtful. Yeah. You good, Mike? Yep, I'm good. Okay. Third question. What stresses you out at the table? Oh, the feeling that my players aren't having fun. And I don't care how it manifests. Um, I don't care if players check their phones or not. So if someone glances at their phone or responds to an email or is texting someone, I don't care. We have wives, we have children, we we have things that we need to respond to. So that never bothers me. But if someone is constantly on their phone and they seem bored, or if I'm getting a lot of like sighs, like, you know, when something happens, any any feeling that players aren't having fun, oh, that stresses me out so bad. I feel like all the players' fun rests on my shoulders. So I can't tell you what a relief it is when someone says something and everyone at the table laughs or something disappointing happens and everyone at the table is like, oh, man, and groans. That shows me that the players are into it, and that's a huge relief. So conversely, when I put a stimulus out there of something that happens and no one reacts or people are distracted, that stresses me out. And it adds this whole layer of, well, did they hear me? Should I say it again? And We've all had conversations where we felt awkward, and a lot of the awkwardness comes from, are we even being listened to? So when I'm playing a game and I don't feel listened to, I don't feel heard, I don't feel like the game is resonating, it stresses me out, and I feel like it's my fault as the game master. Just as a uh, follow-up question to that, what's 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 your common go-to tactic for resolving the situation? Uh, it depends on, on the environment, right? So if we're running a game at, say, my house, my kitchen table, then I say, you know what, it's probably time for a break. Why don't we all grab a drink? You know, get up, stretch our legs, be out of the game for a minute, break our immersion, and then hopefully we can come back to it. So that's a good tactic. Um, here lately, though, when we've been playing in the evenings where we have very limited time and, and we can't introduce a lot of breaks like that, uh, I try to shake it up by, by having something happen, or I'll quickly recap what's happening. Like, hey, guys. As a reminder, here's what's going on, here's this situation, here's what Mike just did, and I'll try to bring everyone back into the game. So, one, I'm sorry about checking my phone all the time. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the worst No, that. you heard the first part where I said I don't care about that unless... I am constantly on It's it, to the point where I feel like you're not engaged. But two, I think there are like two threads that run through the game when it comes to engagement, and the first thread is yours as the GM, where... You know, it's up to you to start things off and get the ball rolling. 
but there's also I think a thread of responsibility that rolls through us as the players we where we have to make sure that we're all engaged in engaging each other because the responsibility lies on all of us to make sure that it's cooperative and collaborative so I wouldn't put that entirely on yourself but it's easy to feel that way as the game master yeah I could see that but no I, I agree it believe it or not players out there believe it or not it's possible to be a bad player <laughs> all the horror stories are about the that guy gm but believe it or not it is entirely possible to be a terrible player yes it is absolutely but having said that a lot of the responsibility for the session does fall on the, on the gm shoulders and i accept that i enjoy that challenge i accept that challenge but if i fail of course it's stressful you good Brian? i'm good all right tell me about a time you noticed a problem at the table and fixed it at the table Ooh, i'll talk about the first use of our whiteboard so the first time I saw you guys struggling to understand what was happening in combat, it's the gargoyle story from the, uh, the, the Mission from God game and then the Mission from God podcast. So you can listen to that previous episode. Um, that was just a few episodes ago. But in that particular adventure, the guys were, were facing our gargoyle, and the gargoyle had damage reduction and a very high AC. And I could see, uh, I, I, I just knew that that was not going to go well and the guys were going to wipe. So I hopped up, I put the AC and hit points on the, the whiteboard, and I tracked them on the whiteboard. And that was the first time I'd ever done that. And there's lots of advice that says, hey, don't reveal AC and certainly don't reveal hit points. And Mike, you and I had a good conversation about that just a few episodes ago. But I saw that problem at the table, and I addressed it by getting on the whiteboard and revealing that math to you guys which let you make decisions on a different level, and it let you experience the game on a different level. It's, it's as if your characters were, it's as if you guys at the table could see the mathematical representations of what your characters would already know in the world. Hey, I just hit that gargoyle really hard, and I barely chipped any stone off. It, it's barely hurt, and certainly it's no less capable after my attack than it was before. So that context your characters would have, using the whiteboard to reveal the math to give the players that context. It was the first time I did it, and, and that was me fixing a problem at the table, right then, right there, hopping up and addressing it. Just a follow-up question to that. What would um, what would your uh, uh, solution have been if you'd noticed that that wasn't working for us as a group? So if I, if I was putting it on the whiteboard and you guys still weren't backing down? Yep. Um, I hate to say this, Mike, but there are times at the table when you just need to let it go. It's not It's not up to me what you guys do. And a big part of GMing is accepting that you guys' actions are not up to me. Now, if I failed to adequately describe something about the world and you didn't have the context to know that you weren't making any progress in the fight, that's on me. If the puzzle's just too hard and there's only one solution and it's not interesting and you got to figure out my thought process for creating the puzzle versus this verisimilitude you know, in-world solution to the problem, that's on me. I, for one, really like the mechanic where you draw that up on the board. I feel that, I, I, I'm certain a lot of other GMs would not be comfortable doing that, but I think it adds to the true cooperative nature that we have. I mean, we don't see you as the enemy by any stretch. You know, it's, we're all having fun with the game together, and you're facilitating that. But to Mike's question, if I did that and it still hadn't worked, what would I do? What I was leading up to is I wouldn't do anything differently. I would let you guys wipe. 
I think that's the right answer. Yeah. So I, I saw it happening and I thought, mm, this is my fault. I'm not adequately describing that they're not making progress. Let me fix that. If I fix that and you still kept at it, then, uh, then that's on you. I'm not going to change your choice. I'm not going to say, hey, guys, you know you can retreat. I'm not going to say that. I'm going to let you, as long as you know it's a brick wall, as you're bashing your head against it, I'm going to let you keep doing it. If you don't realize it's a brick wall, that's my fault. Cool. Good. Okay. Um, tell me about a time you noticed a problem at the table and fixed it away from the table. Okay, so last time was at the table, fixing it at the table. This time is away from the table. I'm going to talk about 4th edition. So 4th edition for us, and for many other groups online, this is certainly the consensus, is the combat was mighty slow. It just took a long time. Round after round, it it took a long time. Uh, We did a lot to try to address that, because despite what we've said on on previous episodes and giving 4th edition a hard time, we really enjoyed 4th edition. Heck yeah. It was our first exposure to D&D. We were still learning a lot. We were still learning what adventures we even liked and what types of adventures we even liked. So we were still learning. And I did a lot to address the problems of of fourth edition at our table. And I'll, I'll go into some specifics here. So I started creating initiative cards. I made a Visio template, and I started putting all the information on cards. And I had hero cards as well. And for every encounter, I had a little deck of cards, and I would we do the initiative order. I would shuffle the cards in that order, and then every time someone finished a turn, I'd flip the card, and then boom, I know whose turn it is. But more importantly, I remember, oh, you're on fire. You need to make a saving throw at the start of your turn. Oh, you've been poisoned. You need to make a saving throw or take poison damage. You know, we 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 I would have written down all those status effects as they occurred. So it, it wasn't a bunch of markers and rings around minis, and, 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 and it was a way to track initiative and all the conditions and have all the stats at my fingertips. It was a very easy way to do that. And my hero cards were bigger than my monster cards. So when my monsters attacked the heroes, I could roll and then glance at the hero card and look at, your, look at, the, look at the right defense, and I could tell you, you know, okay, Mike, the dragon breathes fire at you. Oh, it hits. And if you're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, how do you know it hits? Oh, well, I rolled a 17, and then your reflex is 15. You know, I could do that. I could say that. But in general, I said it hits, and you guys trusted me. So I used those cards to really speed up combat by tracking initiative and conditions, because conditions were so important in 4E. Oh, yeah. Something else I did to speed 4th edition up is, and I talked about this before, is I doubled the monster's damage, and I halved their hit points. So... When they hit you guys, they hit hard. I remember the first game where I told you guys, all right, I've done something different with the monsters, and I told you flat out, I've doubled their damage, I've had their hit points. You know, it's going to average out to they're doing the same amount of damage to you per encounter, but combat will be over much, much faster. And the first time one of them hit you, and it was like, all right, Mike, this goblin hits you for roll, roll, roll. You know, making the number up here, I can't remember, like 19 damage. You're like, whoa. whoa. Yeah. Yep, yep. I don't know about this new system, but then two rounds later, you killed the goblin. Yep. So I think we, we we got to a point where, yeah, they're doing massive damage to you guys, but they go down really, really fast. Yep. And that really helped make 4E much more runnable. Yeah, I mean, I remember that very well, and I think that probably colors part of the reason that I liked 4th Edition so much. 
is that specific specific change. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it made combat at, at, at higher levels much easier to deal with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, those those both those things that I implemented, the Visio template and the the monster math, that was that was between sessions. Between sessions I created those cards. I, I had the idea for it at the table, but created them during you know, created them between sessions. And then I did all the math for the monsters between sessions so that when I had my deck of cards, that math was already done for me. So I, I had a lot of game prep. Now, I'll say this. Having to take on the burden of that math and and printing out those cards and cutting them out and having them ready, taking on that burden did lead to me burning out on fourth edition. There was a lot of prep time with a lot, that. A yeah. lot of craft. So I took on a lot of prep to be able to streamline content. You, you, to st- st- start, sorry, to streamline the session. I took on a lot of pre-session prep, and I did burn out on that. And didn't you take out like a Michael's credit card for that? <laughs> <laughs> yep. So uh, in this next part of the session, uh, we're going to change it up to talk to, uh, to ask to uh, ask some questions to your style, kind of how you how you manage and you run your table and some of your preferences for how you run your game. So first question: Do you look up rules at the table or away from the table? Uh, I hate to say answer in interviews, but I'm going to answer honestly and say it depends. So if we're learning a system together, then and it takes just a few minutes and the the books are fairly well organized, let's look it up. We're all going to learn something. It's if it's something like you know, gosh, we're playing our first our when we played our first uh, session of Pathfinder, and someone died, someone got reduced to zero hit points. It's like you know what, we better look that up because I had read about it before the session, but at this point, I know so many D twenty games that my my biggest rules downfall right now is I know yeah, do I know the rules for getting reduced to zero hit points? Yeah, in fact, I don't know one set of rules for getting reduced to zero hit points. I know like four. So, which one's Pathfinder again? Which you know, what do we do? Looking those up when it's our first session or our second session in a new system, absolutely, let's do that. It's going to come up over and over, and we're all going to learn from it. Having said that, if it's a really dramatic moment and it's going to break the tension and it's going to break the bubble, so if the bubble is we're all in the zone together, the dice are flowing, the the RP is flowing, the story's flowing, and we're in the zone. I'm not going to break us out of that zone for anything. I'm going to say, you know what? Here's what happens. We'll look it up later. And you guys are all, all great about accepting that. So I hate saying it depends, but it depends. I, so much of the advice you see on the internet, never look up rules at the table. Well, okay, never. Never say never. Right. If you're learning a system together, look them up. If you're on a short rest or a long rest and it's kind of a natural pause in the game, look it up. It's interesting to everyone. We're playing this game together. The rules make us all speak the same language. Let's look it up. If we're in the bubble and and the outside world has fallen away, then no, I'm not flipping through a book. Kind of a follow up to that that, that actually leads more into situational character uh, question. But but how would you deal with a player who who constantly insists on breaking that RP to stop and look up a rule? Who who wants to be that rules lawyer? Uh, that happens sometimes, uh, and and even with our group, it, it's different people per session. But sometimes someone wants to look it up. So I'll say, or more accurately, it's not, that they want, it's, not that, it's not that they want to be a rules lawyer. It's that they want to use a spell and they've forgotten the spell. Oh, that's me all the time. So here's what I, here's what I frequently do even in our game. And as soon as I say this, you, you'll, you'll recognize it. I'll say, great, you look that up. We're going to go ahead and go to Mercial's turn or Kyra's turn. And we'll have the next player who's ready go ahead and be rolling their attack and their damage. And once the person finds what they want to look up, 
we'll pan back over to them and we'll let them finish out their turn. But I, I do that frequently. If someone wants to look it up, I don't see that as breaking the bubble as long as I can contain it and say, great, you do that. I'm going to move on. And none of you have ever stopped me from doing that. But I would have an issue if, if, if I said that and they're like, no, 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 wait, because what I'm doing could change the situation. Okay, well, you should have already looked that up. Too bad. Yep. Yep. Okay. So I, I'm going to, if we're in the bubble and someone wants to look up a rule, fine, but we're moving on. Cool. So uh, the next question, um, we've done both uh, grid-based with minis and theater of the mind, but which do you prefer? I prefer theater of the mind just because it feels so free to be able to go anywhere to any, okay, you're in a warehouse. Okay, you're in a hut in the middle of a swamp. Okay, now you're on the roof of a building. You can go anywhere that makes sense in the story without having to worry about finding the right map or even drawing the right map. Because if you have one of those dry erase mats or wet erase mats, that's great, but you still got to take the time to draw it out. And if we're going to, and you could say, well, gosh, Dusty, you could just draw a big rectangle and say, this is the roof of the building. But I don't want to do that. I want to make, if we're on a grid, I want to make it interesting. Here's some chimneys in the way. Here, here's, here are these obstacles. Here's this cover. Here's this. Here's that. Um, here are these danger zones where you could fall through the roof. I'm going to want to add all these features, even if I'm drawing a map on the fly. So gridded games and our Pathfinder game that we're playing right now is gridded. And I like the tactics and I like the moving around and I like the figuring out where stuff is. I like that. What I don't like is trying to figure out where you're going to have combat. When We haven't gotten to this game yet, but the, the game where Shalalu asked you to run a red exercise against her men and attack that fort. Remember, I had to say, okay, guys, here's the map. Do me a favor and stay on this map. The, the, yeah. the, the fort's got, yeah. There's a full 360 around the fort, but I need you to attack the fort from this direction because these are the maps that I have and, and the table's only so big. And I hate saying that, but if we're going to limit ourselves to a grid, then some of those limitations come into play. Have you run a theater of the mind, theater of the mind game where you felt that it wasn't appropriate for the way the game played out? No, because when it got to a point where really where we really needed to know how far apart we were, how far we were from things, I pulled out a piece of paper and I quickly just started tracking how far different things were away. So, a good example of that is the Sorcerer's Apprentice. I believe it's the Sorcerer's Apprentice. It's the game written by the Rainy Days, the adventure written by the Rainy yeah. Days that we recorded, Mike, at your house. Mm-hmm. Yep. So there were a couple scenarios where, you know, the, the enemies are attacking you at range. Okay, how far away are they? And I, and I wouldn't answer in feet. I would say, you know what? If you run, you can get there. But you're going you're gonna to take a minus two to your AC. If you walk, you can get most of the way there at full AC and then get there on your next turn. I would answer questions in terms of number of moves. And I just jotted down, not even the map, I jotted down a very simple line graph, like a timeline of, okay, here they are, here's you, here's where you'll be after a walk, here's after a run. And I and I wasn't showing you guys that. That was just a real quick line graph for me so that when I came back to your turn, I could be consistent with what I previously said. So, no, I've never been off the grid and felt like I needed the grid. Because in situations like that, I can quickly just sketch something out that I'm not sharing with you, but it stays consistent for me. Having said that, I would reverse the question for you guys and say, in that particular game, where I track distances like that, was that 
as satisfying? Was that fine? Or would you have preferred a grid? I'd say that absolutely worked for me. I, I No, I preferred theater of the mind. I think there are times in playing the game, if I had a grid, it would make it easier for me to understand what's going on. However, every single game that we've played since we started doing Theater of the Mind, when we went back and forth, I couldn't tell you if we actually used minis in a grid or if it was Theater of the Mind because they were all satisfying and in the end it didn't matter. And I'll say this too. This preference is not a very strong preference. I, I can see myself. I, I I have not sworn off the grid. We're using the grid right now for our Pathfinder game. Our I would really enjoy it if our next campaign was in a gridless system, just for the variety, and and not having to worry about lugging around maps. But then the campaign after that, I'll probably want the grid again. So I have a preference for Theater of the Mind. It's not a strong preference. Hey Mike, do you mind if I ask the next question? No, go for well, it. With that being said, do you prefer, when it comes to grids, do you prefer a grid uh, with squares or hexes? I love the idea of hexes. I love the idea of hexes. We've never used hexes at our table, but I love the idea of hexes. I, I really want to run a hex game. The problem I have with hex games, and, and there are games that are called hex crawlers, where the area map, the overall map, is a hexagonal map, and every hexagon represents basically a day's travel. And I don't mean that. I mean the tactical grid being on hexes. I really want to do that. The problem I have with that is buildings are square. By the, for the most part, buildings are rectangles, and rectangles don't beautifully fit the hex diagram. Having said that, if we ever do a skirmish, like, like just an open battlefield skirmish, you guys against an anti-party or something like that, I would love to do that on some hexes and open up some extra dimensions of movement. And flanking is just as easy to figure out because being 180 degrees apart is very easy to figure out on a hex grid. Well, what would you I would love to do hexes. What would you say is the advantage, advantages of and disadvantages of a hex system versus a grid system? With hexes, you don't have to do the crazy diagonal math. In Pathfinder, it's pretty easy, right? Every second diagonal, you count for two move squares. With hexes, you can just do away with that. There's no such thing as diagonals. If you can move 10 squares, you can move 10 hexes. And... As long as the hex are touching, uh, you, you count out 10 hexes, and whatever you do, that's fine. There's no there's no diagonal rules. Any, any, I mean, so is it just that, or is there more to it? No, there's more to it than that. Um, you can, it just feels more organic in terms of eight people. So right now, on a, on a square grid, one square could be surrounded by eight enemies. And the the enemies in the four diagonal corners, that feels a little iffy to me. Like that, that, that feels like, I don't know if those guys could really get in attacks, but the hexes where one hexagon is surrounded by six hexagons, it feels more realistic and it feels more like you can move in any direction instead of being limited to the cardinal directions, being able to move in in six directions instead of four. It just feels realer, but it's still codified enough that it's easy to manage. And, and by the way, I have been on hex grids in previous games. So, um, Battletech, for example, happens on hexes. Heroescape that we've played is on hexes. And and when you move around, it feels realistic in terms of you can kind of move where you want instead of being limited to the cardinal directions. Cool. I'm, I'm taking notes on that. Mike, okay. go ahead. Okay. So kind of speaking of combat, which, which do you actually prefer, combat or RP? Oh, RP, far and away. Far and away RP. I, I, I like combat, and I don't think I'd run D&D without combat. The whole point 
if, if you think of different game systems as ways to make different movies, right? So D and D makes movies that are somewhere between Conan the Barbarian and Lord of the Rings, you, you, depending on how gritty you go. If gritty is the sliding scale, D and D fifth edition, D and D whatever edition of D and D, those are the kinds of of movies that you're making at the table as you tell the story together. And then other systems make different kinds of movies. But in, in D&D, combat is a necessary component to a game for me. There are enough skills on your character sheet that you could run an entire campaign with no combat. And arguably, that's much realer because I've never been in combat. I've, I've never been in, you know, well, outside of high school, I've never been in fist fights. It just seems absurd for adults to get into fist fights. It seems absurd to resort to violence to solve a lot of problems. But this game is kind of about that genre of movie. So for me, I, I like combat, but I prefer the RP just because I want that combat to tell a story. I can't remember which fight coordinator it was, but I used to love DVD behind the scenes special features. And there was some fight coordinator who was talking about how every fight in his movies needed to tell a story. And he wanted the character's moves in the fight to reflect their character, the shady characters doing, you know, kind of cheatsy, cheap moves. The heroic character is defending others and defending innocence and, and containing the fight so that to, to, to minimize collateral damage. So having the fight tell a story in that way, the RP that we do gives context to our fights. Fights without RP, it's a board game. It's a chess game. And who wins and who loses and who has bragging rights matters for like 10 minutes. But having a good, satisfying combat in the context of a story that we've told through RP resonates. And we remember those. So as a follow-up question to that, what's, um, well, I guess first is kind of two-part question. Have you ever ran a purely RP-only game? And what were your feelings about that game? Yeah, we've done that, right? So... The game in Sandpoint, where you guys were getting to know Sandpoint and you were doing some shopping and some negotiating with some merchants, there was no combat whatsoever in that game. You intimidated the heck out of out of this gangster, but there was no combat. And that game, I was nervous about it. I was nervous that there had been no combat and how would you guys feel about it, but I had fun. And all of you have assured me immediately after and then weeks after that you did have fun with that session. So definitely, games without combat have have happened at our table and when they've happened they're a novelty but they're welcome i'll say that i i, I prefer the rping as well uh, i do too <laughs> <laughs> so mike i took two, two questions why don't you uh ask the final question sure um so what's your stance on uh game master player characters oh man complicated question so for me i've never used them at my table the only time i was ever even tempted to use it was early on in fourth edition i don't know if you guys remember it was the Ghost Tower of the Witchlight Fens. So the Ghost Tower of the Witchlight Fens, it was it was freely available through Wizards. It was a PDF. It was a it was a sort of a middle adventure in the red box for fourth edition that started the Essentials line. There was the solo player adventure where as you play you kind of build your character. And then there was the GM run dungeon adventure. Well, between those two adventures was another choose your own one player adventure called the ghost tower of the Witchlight fence where you encountered this I think she was an elf or a half elf and she was trying to recover her father's sword i ran that adventure as a group adventure for you guys 
And when it came to, okay, well, who's going to run this female elf character? That's the only time I was ever even tempted to have a GMPC, and I ultimately decided not to run her. We looked around the table, and I asked who would be most comfortable running a second character. And Mike, if you recall, that was you. And I handed you her stat block. And, and you, when it was your turn, you, you ran two characters. So I would never do a GMPC. For me, it's for a couple of reasons. One, you guys own the protagonist piece of the story. And I don't want to intrude on that. And if I have a voice on the protagonist side of the story, then I own too much of the story. So I want to own the antagonists. I want you to own the protagonists. And I want us to collaborate on the story. And I feel very strongly about that. So I can't foresee ever personally running a GMPC. Having said that, I'm a player in Martin's game. And Martin has always maintained several GMPCs to round out the party. And I don't talk much about that because it's it's not an issue very much. The way Martin does it, he recognizes gaps. So so it's it's three players, sometimes four. So the players are myself, Bernard, and Carl. And with Carl as a sometimes attendee. And then Martin is the GM. Well, it's mostly me and Bernard. And we are already running two characters each. And we're playing Castles and Crusades, which is a very unforgiving system where combat is very, very deadly. Martin recognizes holes in our capabilities. And he introduces GMPCs to fill out those holes. Having said that, his GMPCs are usually very mercenary characters that are motivated by greed. Because that makes it very easy for him to role play. And it makes it easy for those characters to contribute what they think we should do. And we can just dismiss that pretty easily. We can go with it or dismiss it as we please. We really don't feel like those those player characters are trying to own any piece of the protagonist side of the story. So Gareth is one of the GMPCs. He's a rogue. We didn't have a rogue otherwise. We needed one. The style of game that Martin runs has a lot of traps. So we need a rogue to get past those. So we have a rogue. But that rogue is motivated by treasure, greed, and being risk-averse. So when he says what he thinks we should do, it's very easy to say, no, we're going in. I don't feel like Martin's trying to own our side of the table. So I'm not opposed to GMs doing it if they do it well, and Martin does it well. I personally won't do it because my gaming groups are big enough, and I don't see a need. Sorry, long, long-winded answer. No, that makes sense. I, uh, you beat me to the follow-up question, and that was, that was a good a- example of how someone could effectively run GMPCs. And give them very, very, very simple motivations that the actual players all know about. Yep. Awesome. Well, Dusty, thank you very much for uh, taking time today to sit down with us and answer these questions. Uh, we have a couple of more. No, we don't. Okay. <laughs> uh, that was great. I, I really I really enjoyed this. Yeah, breaking yep. format. Talking about our sessions all the time, talking about our games that we've run, it, it kind of has an element of talking about our characters. And when someone from another RP group kind of corners you and talks about your character, that's, that, that's stereotypically bad. It's stereotypically boring. It's like someone telling you about their dreams. You just don't care. Yeah, exactly. So it, I feel good breaking format. We're still talking about our games a little bit, but it's, it's more focused on the lessons. I still like our format because the point of our format isn't that we talk about our characters and our games and our dreams. The point of the podcast is that, look, we're not perfect. We screw up. Here's how we've screwed up. But I think that can get lost, and I think I was feeling like we'd over-indexed on talking about our characters and talking about our sessions and rehashing our stories for us. 
And this podcast shouldn't be about us. It's about us exposing our own faults to others so that they can learn what we've already learned. Exactly. One thing I really like about this, again, it, it's a chance for us to share. And we have a game that we run consistently with each other. You have the one that you do with Martin, but for me, and I guess for Mike as well, this is just the only ones that we do. So one thing I wanted to mention, though, is um, so this episode is being posted on October 8th, 2017, which means that we are exactly one month and two days away from Mace 2017. Yes. And that's a chance to get together and interact with other players, learn other people's GM style and play style. So... Um, you're actually running a couple of games, aren't you? I am. So Mace is in Charlotte, November 10th, 11th, and 12th. I'm running a game on Friday evening, so the evening of the 10th from 8 to midnight, and then the evening of the 11th from 8 to midnight. Uh, those two games are Terror on the Kataro, which is a, a not steampunk, sorry, steamship. It, it's, it's a 1920s pulp adventure that takes place on a steamship. And then also the Medieval Avengers. So Tribality, Tribality.com did these 5e avengers builds we used those character builds in, in one of our games and ran a medieval avengers game and it was a great deal of fun so i'm in the process of well i've written the adventure i'm, I'm pulling the materials together but i've already registered for the game I'm, I'm ready to run it for a medieval avengers game if either of those sound interesting to you hey i would love for you to register so just look for me Destinian Camberides, when you register for mace registration opened last week on september 29th so if if you are registered for Mace, please check out my games. Uh, I would love to have you at the table, and you can tell me to my face what a terrible podcaster I am and the lessons that I need to learn as GM after the game. Just don't interrupt the flow of the game for the players. Wait until after to tell me how awful I am. But come sit at my table. I would love to run a game for you. Just a fair bit of warning, Dusty is a very large guy. You probably would not want to say that to his face. I take feedback very well. It's the point of the show. <laughs> but yeah, I'll be at Mace. I'm very excited about Mace. Very intimidating. Very excited about Mace. So so please, come sit at my table. I'll, again, I'd, I'd love to run a game for you. Awesome. All right, thank you for listening. Quick reminder, as always, that RPG Lessons Learned is a, is a member of the RFC family of shows. So visit tfradio.net to see all of the amazing podcasts that, that Brian here puts out on a weekly basis. And then the Amazon referral link for the RFC family of shows is right there on tfradio.net. As a reminder, Amazon charges no extra for... for folks who shop Amazon through the referral link program, but it does show Amazon who referred the traffic and a couple cents get kicked back to the RFC family of shows. So the show is free for you, but it's not cheap for Brian. A lot of hosting, a lot of equipment, and, and some investment goes into the show. So thank you for any support you can throw his way at no cost to you. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them lessons learned, and we're sharing ours with you.